One of the kind of funny things we had to figure out was how to quickly market to the college campus. And so one of our early purchases was a frog and beaver costume that we uh, put on. I I went to Cornell. I was actually going to Cornell on a recruiting trip for Lehman. And I was uh, standing on the quad in this ridiculous costume, handing out cards about this carpooling service. Is this a frog costume or the beaver costume? I was the beaver. You were the beaver, okay. And at that next day at the Lehman recruiting event, a girl came up to me and said, did I see you in a a beaver costume yesterday? (laughs) (laughs) From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. Guy Raz, and on today's show, how John Zimmer made private cars work like taxis, and in the process, helped build a service now worth billions. So, do you actually remember the days of walking onto the sidewalk, sticking out your hand, inhaling a taxi? I mean, it, it feels like ancient history, right? But still... Even though this world of instant car rides is just a few years old, we're so used to it that if you're like me, you start to get really antsy and anxious when the Uber or Lyft app says you have to wait for three minutes for your ride. And just think about how quickly ride-sharing apps like Uber and Lyft have totally transformed transportation in many cities around the world, how in most places they've become indispensable, which has also meant that the competition between the two companies has been really fierce since 2012, when both of them launched a service that turned private cars into public taxis. But the amazing thing is, is even though Lyft is just a fraction the size of Uber, it is still valued at more than $5 billion. And one of the guys behind it, John Zimmer, he never thought that ride-sharing would be his life's work. He actually studied hotel management at Cornell. But his interests really started to change during his senior year. I took a course that was really, really important to me uh, called Green Cities. And I had this amazing professor. His first lecture is the history of the world in 30 minutes, kind of like the book Guns, Germs, and Steel. (laughs) And he ended the lecture saying that we're at a really important time in world history where population density is rising rapidly in our cities uh, as more and more people move there and resources and infrastructures that were built decades ago are becoming more and more strained. And he kind of challenged us at the end of the class and said, if you don't make this class the most important thing you do this semester, then I don't want to teach you. Because if we don't fix these problems, we're going to have major economic, environmental, and social problems. And that kind of set me on a path, which eventually led to Lyft. But being that I grew up in the East Coast and in Connecticut and New York, I did feel like I had to have a finance experience. And so after graduating, I went and worked at Lehman Brothers uh, in 2006. Wow. Lehman Brothers in 2006. Like when, yeah. when we look back on that in, in 100 years, we'll be like, wow, that was just, woof. That was like <laughs> the, uh, you know, the decline and fall right there. So you go to Lehman Brothers in 2006. And what, what, what did you do there? So I was doing real estate finance. So I was right in the heart of where everything happened. And as you said, right at that moment from from 2006 to 2008 was my two-year analyst program. Was it interesting? 
It was interesting for a few months,、uh, but I gotta say, I my interest declined probably after just about a year, and so I started thinking what what else I could do. And it was actually about about a year into it that I was on Facebook one night and saw Logan, who is now now my co-founder, who I didn't know at the time, posted on a mutual friend's Facebook page saying that he was starting a website called Zimride. And and, and what like what was it? What was it, what was his story? So Logan's background is that he grew up in LA, hating traffic. He then went to UC Santa Barbara and made an experiment of himself. So he didn't bring a car to school. And he wanted to see how he could survive without a car, and he started a car sharing program similar to Zipcar first, using University Fleet vehicles, and he got the attention of the local transit board. And the local transit board elected him as the youngest member ever to be on this transit board. And Logan this is in, was the, in Santa Barbara. In Santa Barbara, and he quickly grew to realize the challenges in public transportation, and, and came to the conclusion that across the country. When you pay to get on the bus, you're really only covering about 30% of the operating cost. So what that means is a three-dollar bus fare actually costs the government ten. And as the lines get more busy, they get harder to fund and harder to add service levels. So they actually, the more busy they get, the worse they get. So he came to the conclusion that public transportation was broken. And while the promise of public transit is phenomenal, the reality was not. And so. He then traveled to Zimbabwe, where he saw people sharing rides out of necessity, and got inspired to build a website that would connect people going the same way to be able to sell a seat in their car, and that's why he called the website Zimride. After Zimbabwe, yeah. So Logan was was basically trying to build a website that was like. Hey, I'm going this way, like a, a sort of a car sharing website.、Um, like it used to be that you would just advertise on like Craigslist or put something on a pinboard and like on college campuses saying driving from you know L.A. to San Francisco, do you need a ride? But he was basically trying to take that concept and put it online. Exactly. Yeah. So, like you said, we had these physical bulletin boards or digital bulletin boards for people going along the same way if they're going home for spring break or fall break. Uh, but there was no identity、uh, or ratings behind that, and so it was limited in how many people actually use them. And so we thought, how could we make a safer system?、Uh, and you know, if you tied something to a social network like Facebook, you could have a profile of the individual you're going to share a ride with and follow up with ratings、uh, of of how that ride experience was,、uh, which would create a a safer and more broadly used environment for for carpooling on college campuses. Hmm. So what happens to you guys then? Like at this stage, you and Logan still hadn't met, right? So do you email him or do you, do you call him or what? So we got on a call, I believe, and and he said that he was actually going to be、uh, in New York City in a few weeks, and so we ended up meeting up and talking a lot about about carpooling, and and I shared some of the thoughts、uh, that I had from that course I took at Cornell. We realized that we were both so passionate. About solving the same problem, and and began working together right after that trip in New York. Did you and did you guys just hit it off right away? You liked each other. Yeah, yeah. We're he's become、uh, my best friend. He was best man in my wedding. He's also a very focused, calm, and thoughtful person. There's this funny story when he was a kid. I think he was about eight years old. His parents had had just gotten a TV, and、uh, I guess a few weeks later, he said, 
he asked his parents to remove the TV from the house because it was distracting him. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think that just speaks to his his level of focus, and uh, I, I've really enjoyed uh, working with him because of that that both passion, uh, focus, and thoughtfulness. Okay, so you guys uh, start working on Zimride together, uh, and at this point, you're you're still at Lehman Brothers, right? Right. And what what was what, what's Logan doing at this point? So he's at UC Santa Barbara as a sustainability coordinator after he's graduated. He's working on Zimride as a side project. He actually did uh, a lot of the original coding of the website, and we didn't know whether it was a, a big business. We thought it it could be. Um, but before we were going to jump all the way in, we wanted to start working on it. So we spent uh, nights and weekends uh, working on on Zimride. Just like remotely, you were in New York and he was in Santa Barbara and you were just like emailing and like Skyping and stuff all the time? Yeah, yeah. We'd have late night Skype and every maybe month or two, we, we'd try to get together. And on, on Logan's end, he's you know working on building the website. On my end, I'm figuring out how do we get enough people using the platform so that it works. It was really like a chicken or egg problem where the idea of having a lot of seats to choose from on your way home from, say, Cornell in upstate New York to go to New York City was exciting. You know, there's very few bus routes. Not everyone owned a car or had a car on campus. And so if I could go on, you know, Zimride Cornell Edition and buy a seat in someone else's car for $20 or $30, that would be really exciting. But it had to be there. It had to be available. We had to create both sides of the marketplace. So the idea was like kind of like the, how Facebook originally launched, which was you would just have these sites at universities so, so students could figure out like who they could hitch ride with. Exactly. And, and so one of the kind of funny things uh, we had to figure out was, was how to quickly market to the college campus. And yeah. so this is kind of strange. We wanted to put on costumes on campus and hand out information about this service. Our, one of our early purchases was a frog and beaver costume that we uh, put on. I, I went to Cornell. I was actually going to Cornell on a recruiting trip for Lehman, but I went a few days early. And I was uh, standing on the quad in this ridiculous costume, handing out cards about this carpooling this service. frog costume or the beaver costume? I was the beaver. You were the beaver, yeah. okay. Yeah. And, and what were you, like, <laughs> handing out flyers? Yeah, so we needed to get a critical mass of, let's call it, a thousand people uh, offering their seats so that those that went on to look for a seat could find one. And it worked. <laughs> and at that next day at the Lehman recruiting event, uh, a girl came up to me while I was surrounded by a lot of our managing directors and said, did I see you in a, in a beaver costume <laughs> yesterday? You know, the next step was, let's sell a private network to the various universities. And uh, we were able to, over uh, a few year period, sell to 150 universities and companies that would pay us an annual fee for this private carpooling network. Oh wow! So, so you were not, you weren't taking a cut off the like off the fee that people would charge to share a ride. Uh, correct. Not Did, at, not at that time. So the the business model was let's sell these universities like on a subscription model, and you sold it to hundred. So, so you were personally calling universities and pitching this to them. Yeah. So I was personally calling and and traveling to probably visited hundreds of universities uh, in, in those first few years. How did you do this 
in the beginning and work at Lehman Brothers full time? So in the in the first year, it was more about getting the product stood up and having a proof point, yeah, and, and that being kind of Cornell. And so uh, the the majority, virtually all of those sales came once once I went full time uh, in two thousand eight. You were like, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to leave Lehman Brothers. Yeah. So it was early 2008 and I had made the decision. And uh, my best friend's mother actually worked in the same building as me uh, when I was at Lehman Brothers. And I told her what I wanted to do. And she said, how could you leave a sure thing like Lehman <laughs> to do a crazy carpool startup? <laughs> how many people said that to you, by the way? How many people said, you're leaving Lehman Brothers yeah. in 2008 to go do some internet thing? <laughs> Yeah, se- several people said that to me, and and then you know three months later, Lehman was bankrupt. That's crazy. We knew there there were challenges going on at Lehman, but I could not have predicted that three months later uh, they would have been bankrupt. So you moved to Silicon Valley in 2008 to go full time on Zimride with Logan Green. Yes. Did Zimride get become profitable? Yep, it did. Like hugely profitable or respectably profitable? I'd say res- respectably profitable. So it was a pretty, you know, robust company. And did you see this as this was going to be your thing? This is what you were going to do with your life? Yeah. I mean, the dream was to start a business that had a major and important impact on our world and specifically on the way that our cities are designed. And so, you know, I think from an early period, we, we considered this. Uh, our life's work. I mean, you were going to basically transform carpooling. You were going to do for carpooling sort of what Airbnb has done for accommodation. Exactly. So, so what happened? How did you shift from like this concept of carpooling to what would eventually become Lyft? <laughs> so in the middle of 2012... Um, it's like four years in now. Yeah, about four years of doing it full time. Yeah. And, and we stop and look at ourselves and say, you know, how, how, how are things going? And what would we do if we were starting over today? I think that's a really helpful exercise. Huh. And what was true in 2012 that was not true when we started was the proliferation of smartphones and operating systems that would enable more short-term planning and short-distance transportation. Because with Zimride, you had to go on a website and you had to find the date and the person going, right? And you had to sort of do it, I guess, at least a day in advance, right? Exactly, yeah. So once the technology shifted, that would enable uh, more instant uh, decision-making to happen. Our our thought process shifted. And you guys started to think, maybe we should focus on something else? Yeah, so we had seen... Uh, Uber had started kind of limos on demand. The black car, right? Yeah, and we said, you know, that's interesting from a, uh, you know, using, you know, mobile technology, but it wasn't that interesting to us from, you know, picking, you know, a small population of people that can afford right. kind of a private driver type experience. Because Uber was like a, an elite service at the beginning. It was just these black cars and it was sort of their kind of fancy. Yeah, so... The average American household spends over $9,000 every year on owning and operating a car. This equates to over $2 trillion annually in the U.S., and the car sits parked 96% of the time. And so we said, how could we take these personal vehicles that are parked at all times and expensive to their owners and make better use of them? And, And so the idea was to create an app 
where you could you could request uh, someone's personal vehicle on demand. But the but the platform really at, the, at that point was just, hey, I have a car sitting here and, and I'm going to make it available to kind of rent out for an hour. No, it was, uh, hey, I have a car and I have time and I'm going to go drive uh, other people around right. for, for a payment. And it goes back to kind of my hospitality experience of how do we create something that was centered around service about treating driver and passenger with respect but also you got to remember what is now accepted as normal of getting into someone else's vehicle was not at all normal at the time. Right. In fact, we had to work to change people's behavior and in the early days suggesting people sit up front um, and, and creating this your friend with a car hospitality environment. We felt that one, it opened the audience to a larger set of drivers. You know, if you go in a room of our a hundred of our friends, and you ask how many of you are willing to drive a taxi, a couple hands maybe go up. When you say how many of you are willing to share a ride, uh, you know, 75 hands would go up. Hmm. And so we wanted to create the experience around that uh, because after many, many years of being, you know, told not to do this behavior and many, many years of seeing a yellow vehicle and thinking that that is safe just because it's yellow, um, we had a lot of you know, behavior change to, to kind of push through. John Zimmer, co-founder of Lyft. After the break, how the state of California almost killed his company. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to GoDaddy.com. They give customers the tools and insights they need to transform their ideas and personal initiatives into success. With GoDaddy, small business owners have everything they need to get their business online, including 24-7 support. GoDaddy is the world's largest technology provider dedicated to small business. They're offering How I Built This listeners 30% off all new products. Just go to godaddy.com slash podcast and use code BUILT30. Thanks also to Betterment. Betterment combines time-tested investing principles with the transparency and ease of use you expect from great technology, focusing on lower fees and taxes. And here's what you might find refreshing. Betterment really cares that you reach your financial goals. And that's why they keep their fees low. How I Built This listeners can get one month managed for free. For more information, visit betterment.com slash built. And just one more thing before we get back to the show. As you probably know by now, at the end of every episode, we're telling your stories about the companies or products that you are building. So please do stick around to hear it. But for now, back to the show. It's How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So it's 2012, and John and Logan were still working on this carpool concept called Zimride, and they were doing pretty well. They'd pitched a bunch of investors in Silicon Valley. They got some money. But around this time, they decided to change course and focus on other ways they could make car sharing accessible to millions of people, basically an early version of what eventually would become Lyft. But before they could really launch the app, they needed to test it out. So they got in touch with a bunch of drivers. 
So the first set of, of drivers, we actually emailed uh, a bunch of Zimride users. And uh, we said, hey, we have this new project we're trying out, and uh, we'd love you to, to try it out. Then we invited them over to the office and walked through kind of the whole experience uh, that, that we were that They we were, were all in, in, in San Francisco area? Yes. And what did you tell them to do? To just, like, drive around the city? Uh, well, we, we first kind of walked through how, how the app works, all, all the safety standards that we had, and we let them know that what, what's going to happen is that you're going to get a request on your phone, and it's going to let you know where that, that passenger is, that they could go pick up that passenger uh, and, and take them where they needed to go, and that the app would kind of help, help them uh, navigate and do, do all those pickup and drop-off. And at the time, there was a suggested donation at the end of the ride that the passenger could make through their credit card that was attached to their profile. Oh, so this was going to be free if you wanted it to be free? It was in the early days. Um, you got to remember, again, one, that this was was very, very new and, and not normal. And, uh, you know, I'd say would, was fall, would fall in a regulatory gray area. And so one of the ways that we, we, we saw around that was to say, uh, to, to make it optional uh, for payment in the early days until we had uh, forged through the the right regulatory structure. So, so at w- what point did you come up with a, a new name? Like when did it go from, from being called Zimride to Lyft? Before we launched it, uh, the working title was Zimride Instant. But while going through, it was actually really a three-week period that the Lyft app, the original Lyft app was built. It was very, very fast. Wow. And the brand Lyft, was thought of during that period as well, along with the logo and everything. So Lift as in, give me a lift. Yeah. Except you couldn't get L-I-F-T because that was probably taken. <laughs> yeah, L-I-F-T.com is owned by Otis Elevators. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, right? Yeah. So you got L-Y-F-T. Yeah, in the, in the middle of 2012, uh, again, over a three-week period, the team moved incredibly fast to build the app, come up with the branding, and uh, meet and background check and onboard the first set of drivers. Wow. And then we then we invited a few friends and it was uh, we got an incredible response. So this is only in San Francisco at this point, right? Yeah. And and so how long did it take before you know you you opened this up? You made this into uh, into something anybody could use. So I'd say it was probably the the second half of 2012 where we you know it started to take off. We started to divert resources from Zimride over to Lyft. And then really in, in January of 2013, we said, okay, we, we need to go all in on this. This is a massive opportunity. This has been incredibly successful with a small amount of focus. But that was a really, in many ways, a tough moment because we had worked for you know four or five years on Zimride. And we were deciding to divert all of our attention to an entirely new model. So you guys sold Zimride? Exactly, yeah. So we sold Zimride to Enterprise Rent-A-Car and basically the the assets, uh, the contracts with the universities and retained the entire team and went all in on, on Lyft. So in that first year, how many people downloaded the app? Um, best guess, tens of thousands. And you guys, your, your model was you were taking a cut out of every ride, right? Like a percentage or something like that. Um. So the, the rate is calculated based on uh, distance and time. And then Lyft uh, receives a commission off of that, whether 20 to 25% uh, off of the overall rate. The rest goes to the driver, as well as a uh, trust and service fee. 
So what? So, so when you start this, right? Did you? I mean, now we look back and say, oh, of course this is going to work. But presumably, like you start to face a lot of backlash and, and obstacles from cities that had pretty entrenched, you know, taxi cab commissions and drivers and established regulations about who can pick people up and drive them for money. Yeah. So about a month into launching Lyft, this was in later uh, 2012, we received our first of many cease and desist uh, from various different governments. Um, and it basically said, you need to stop operating. And what did you do? We read the letter and, and we had already done our uh, legwork and research on the laws and, and we asked for a meeting. And I think that was followed by a second cease and desist, but we eventually got a meeting. With the, with who? With the Public Utilities Commission. Okay. And our approach to regulations is to, to really understand the motivations and the needs of, of the regulating entity because we understand they have a very important job. And so we went in and, and asked that. We said, hey, look, are, is this a matter you know, of public safety or is this about you know, existing industries? And they said, public safety, of course. And so we said, we don't own vehicles. We don't have employees driving for us. So we don't fall into the category that you currently have. But we've looked at your safety regulations since that's the most important thing. And we've gone above and beyond on the background checks, which actually still to this day for uh, limos in, in California are not required. We've done driving record checks with more strict criteria. And we've created an insurance policy that's a million dollars, and theirs is and was $750,000. And we said, so if, if it's about safety, what we'd love to do with you is to create a new category that allows you to enforce that we are doing these things that we tell you we're doing, but that we're able to do this in, in a safe uh, way that brings more affordable transportation to uh, California. I mean, they were threatening to sue you, right? Uh, they were threatening to shut us down. Uh, you know, enforce against the drivers that were driving in the community. Were you scared about that possibility? Yes. Because you had sold off Zimride and you put all your eggs in this basket and it could have been shut down. Yeah, I think I literally had a headache for one month. I, I had to go check and make sure nothing was wrong. But it was it was an incredibly stressful time because, as you said, we, we switched all of our focus over to from Zimride to Lyft and... Uh, the opportunity was massive, and the regulatory obstacles uh, were, were just as massive. How long did it take for you to overcome those initial regulatory challenges? Like, was it months, years? I'd say at least at least a year, probably for that first year, if I was to pick the one thing I spent most of my time on, was the government relations and was working to create a, a new regulatory category for, for the space. And then, you know, not just doing that in one state, but being able to demonstrate that in in multiple uh, cities and states. So when when you started to expand outside of San Francisco and then L.A., how fast were you expanding to other cities? Was it like every month, every day, every week? In that kind of earlier period, it was more uh, every few months. Maybe the most intense moment was April uh, 24th, 2014, when we launched 24 markets on the same day. Wow. Who were your competitors? Because Uber was still doing black, mainly black cars, right? Yeah, and there, there really wasn't... Um, there were some other companies that, that were trying in this, in this kind of peer-to-peer personal vehicle space, 
but there there wasn't a, a large amount of competition. There were still so many questions looming around regulatory, frankly, um, that I think you know people were were waiting back uh, to see how that played out. Your focus was on this like Airbnb model, where you've got a car and it's going to be a community and it's going to be this sharing economy thing. Like, what happened when when all of a sudden Uber started doing UberX, where they basically copied your model? Yeah, so I mean, we we assumed that because the opportunity was so large and everything we we're seeing, that there would be more more competition coming, uh, and so it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't a big surprise, and uh, it just you know I think over the the course of the the few years we've been doing this, it's it's made us uh, better, and and frankly, I think both both companies grow faster. How do you differentiate yourself from them? Like, how do you make the case that actually you should go with us and not them? Yeah, so our, our focus in the early days was we needed to ensure we solved the two most important things for our customers first, which was uh, reliability. You can get a ride when you want it at the best possible price. Once you have parity on those, and now, now we do, we've built up enough infrastructure, enough uh, you know, base of driver community that you can get a ride within, on average, three minutes in these cities, then it's about the experience. In today's world, by treating drivers better than any other company, the ability to have cashless tips, get paid in the same day, uh, create an environment where drivers are respected by passengers, and that then translates to passengers being uh, treated better than on any other service. Are you a competitive person? Like, do you do you look at your competition and, and really want to want to beat them? Yes, absolutely. Like, how much does that drive you? That idea. Ah, uh, that's a. I'd say uh, to to a large degree. I used to to play sports, whether it was running track or, or playing soccer, um, and you know I started running track as just to stay in shape for soccer, and then I wanted to to win the race, and I wanted to go under five minute mile, and was able to do that. And so I, I think often now today, you know we're we're in uh, what could be described as a mile, four laps, and we're in lap two, hmm. and. You know, lap three is typically in that race the most critical ma- uh, lap where you set yourself up for victory. And so I think we're making a lot of important moves and decisions now uh, that should allow us to, to win the race. Do you take it personally? Like, you know, Uber obviously has, you know, been a pretty tough competitor. And at times there have been accusations that, that, that they've kind of tried to sabotage you or maybe you guys have to them. And is it, is it personal to you? Do, is it something that you really feel emotionally? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I don't. I mean, is part of it? Well, it's just this is just business, and and you know, in business, there's days where you know you hate your your competitor, but you always still respect them. Or is it really like, no, actually, <laughs> this is really personal. I don't like them. I think we take it, and I take it personally, which drives me hmm. because I believe so strongly in what our team is working on and why we're working on it. We believe that by building what we're building, we can make our cities designed around people instead of cars. And by having the right values and ethics, we can impact society in a way that's bigger than the transportation we provide. Hmm. And so I take it personally because we're out to win for the values that we represent. I don't let that distract me. Uh, I let that you know fuel the fire. And I think in the early days, when I was less mature, it would, it would distract me. Uh, but but today, I think it, it just fuels the desire to, to push harder. 
How, how many people work for Lyft today? So at the company, there's about uh, 1,300 uh, people. And then drivers, do you do you disclose that number? Uh, no, we, we've said several months ago that, you know, last year there was over 300,000. And, mm-hmm. and you can assume that this year uh, that number has grown quite significantly. And we think about like these ride sharing um, companies like Uber and Lyft as this thing, this permanent thing that we all come to depend on. I've got the apps for both companies on my phone. Sorry, I do have both. And um, they've become a part of our lives. Like they're like, I can't even remember what life was like before Lyft or Uber, right? Mm-hmm. And yet we have to imagine one day something is going to replace you guys. You know, people are talking about driverless cars, for example. Do you, do you ever think about that? Sure. I mean, it's that you know, I, I saw the rise and fall of Lehman right before my eyes, and I think that that creates the the right sense of awareness. And when building a company, that that you've seen something like that. Hmm. But when you look at the future, you know, you talk about autonomous cars. An autonomous car is not going to drop out of the sky and be able to do 100% of our trips. That's not real. What's real is that over the next couple of years, it'll be able to do a few percent of our trips, 10% of our trips. of our trips. And what that means for this opportunity is that we're going to be able to address that ultimate goal we have of ending car ownership and providing a full alternative to owning a car. In fact, what you'll be able to do is buy, you know, likely a miles plan from us, a monthly subscription uh, to handle all your transportation needs. And over the next few years, some of those trips will be done by uh, human drivers and and others uh, will be done by autonomous vehicles uh, to the point that we can provide you with amazing uh, hospitality experiences on wheels. John, when you look back at, you know, contacting Logan over Facebook and then like working on the side project and then moving to Menlo Park and pouring your heart and soul into into Zimride and then starting Lyft and watching it turn into a company that value, that's valued over $5 billion. Mm-hmm. Do you sort of look at that and say, sort of say to yourself, okay, I can like breathe out a sigh of relief. Like we're okay. We've made it. We've gone. We've, we've passed the hump. Or are you constantly worried and vigilant every day? Yeah, no, I don't think there's a, a sigh of accomplishment. I think there's uh, the bar keeps getting raised mm-hmm. and that's the bar that, that we raise on ourselves. The goal over the last 10 years for Logan and I hasn't changed. You know, it was Zimride, and then it was Lyft, and then it will have autonomous implications. Until we've accomplished the fact that you don't need to own a car in a city, until we've accomplished the fact that we don't need as many roads and parking lots uh, in our cities, until we allow for our cities to be you know, redesigned around the people living in them instead of the cars that are parked in them, uh, then we're not happy. John Zimmer is a co-founder of Lyft. And by the way, if you've been following the news lately, you might have seen that the competition between Lyft and Uber has suddenly become political. And I mean, really political, like Donald Trump political. For starters, Trump's travel ban prompted Lyft to make a $1 million pledge to the ACLU, which is fighting the ban. Meanwhile, lots of riders were furious that the founder of Uber, Travis Kalanick, was on an advisory group for Trump. Kalanick has since left that group, but before that happened, more than 200,000 riders deleted their Uber accounts. And all of that has led to a spike in business for Lyft. 
please don't turn us off just yet. In a moment, we're going to hear from you about the things you guys are building. But first, a quick thanks to one of our sponsors, Wells Fargo. Imagine what you could do with the right business credit. From expanding your business to increasing your inventory and buying equipment, Wells Fargo Works can help you achieve financial success for your business. Discover online tools and resources to help your business thrive at wellsfargo.com. Wells Fargo, together, we'll go far. Member FDIC and Equal Housing Lender. Hey, it's time now for another installment of How You Built That. And this one came to us from Jaya Iyer. She lives in Oakton, Virginia. And a few years ago, when Jaya's daughter was three, she stood up and made a declaration. My daughter uh, told me that she wants to grow up to be an astronaut. Uh, So that's when I started looking around for clothes with astronaut or space theme, and I realized that there were really none for girls. And sure, Jaya could have bought an astronaut shirt or pajamas in the boys' department, but her daughter's favorite color was pink. I actually looked every place, and there was nothing at all. Not a single pink astronaut shirt. But as it turned out, Jaya was just the right person to tackle this problem. She actually has a PhD in clothing merchandising. So I actually uh, got in touch with some freelance designers and I created a few designs. Like I made a monster truck, which was on a t-shirt that didn't say anything boy about it. I made a pink t-shirt with a race car on it. I made a a girl firefighter on one. And of course, Uh, Jaya also sketched out that pink t-shirt with an astronaut on it. She put her drawings online, she launched a Kickstarter campaign, and she raised 30,000 bucks. And I was lucky that I had the support of my husband, who was always uh, telling me, you know, if you really believe in it, go and do it. So with the Kickstarter money, Jaya found a factory in India willing to make the shirts. She then expanded her line, shirts with computer code, test tubes, and a solar system that glows in the dark, all for kids. But there was a problem. We actually had a lot of parents reaching out to us saying, hey, we don't have anything like this for the moms of these kids. Lots of moms who work in science were asking about clothes for grown-ups. So Jaya started designing dresses with things like the periodic table, the double helix, the solar system, equations. Many school teachers, college professors actually are our customers. You know, it makes them feel great about teaching math and saying that, hey, you know, I'm wearing a math dress because I love math. And they say we feel like Miss Frizzle. (laughs) Jaya now has about 80 designs in her online store. And last year, just one year into starting her business, she and her partner were able to pay themselves a pretty decent salary. Seriously, I did not expect it to become what it has become because when I started, I just did it because my daughter wanted it. And then it just grew and grew and now it's growing so fast that we're having a hard time handling this sometimes. That's Jaya Iyer. Her company is called Svaha Inc. It's named for her daughter, who is now five, by the way, and wants to be a singer, a painter, and a doctor. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. If you want to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can go to howibuiltthis.npr.org. Please also consider subscribing to our show on iTunes and do us a favor, write us a review while you're there. You can also write directly to us at hibt at npr.org. And if you want to send a tweet, it's at how I built this. 
Our show was produced this week by Ramtin Arablui, who also composed the music. Thanks also to Neva Grant, Sanaz Meshkinpour, and Jeff Rogers. Our intern is Claire Breen. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This from NPR. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. If you're still looking for another great NPR podcast, please check out Pop Culture Happy Hour. There is so much out there to watch and listen and read and discuss. It becomes so overwhelming. But this show, Pop Culture Happy Hour, helps you sort it out and figure out what's worth binge watching, downloading, or reading. Pop Culture Happy Hour calls out the best, most creative, and most fun things out there. You can find something to make you happy every week on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. Find the show at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. The news moves fast. Listen to the NPR News Now podcast to keep up. We update stories as they evolve every hour. So no matter when you listen, you get the news as close to live as possible on your schedule. Subscribe to or follow the NPR News Now podcast.